Surface Metal, episode 44. We've, um, I've got Rob with me today and we're going to do an episode we've sort of been planning for quite a while actually, where we're going to mainly cover three albums that came out in the mid-2000s that I feel completely changed the face of essentially extreme metal, but particularly the kind of more technical end of death metal. And then just start it off, we're like, going to go back and see sort of where that came, that sound came from by covering the first Suffocation album. And then after that, we've got some live reviews, and we've also watched a couple of metal-related films recently, so we'll be covering all that. So, yeah, to kick things off, we're covering the first Suffocation album. This is Effigies of the Forgotten, that came out in 1991. Yeah, so Rob, what, like... What are your, what's your relationship with Suffocation like? Yeah, so Suffocation was one of those bands that when I first started getting into death metal, when I got into death and Opeth and things like that, and you go out and then find all the other death metal bands that people are talking about, I brought a bunch of Suffocation albums. I thought, I think I got that one where it's the combination of Pierced from Within and um, Effigy of the Forgotten alongside the obituary one, which was Cause of Death and uh, whatever the other album that comes with that one is. Is it Slowly We Rock that came out of that one? I think it might be. Yeah. yeah. So I, I bought those, I brought Morbid Angel and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and sort of just try to listen to as much death metal as I could. Um, and I remember getting on with it quite well, but it wasn't one of the ones which really like grabbed me. Like I remember Death and Morbid Angel back then were the two bands I was super into in that death metal sphere. Um, and then getting some of the Swedish ones. But coming back and listening to this it makes so much more sense now. Yeah, um, And yeah. I get it so much more. Like, since going on and getting into, you know, the more technical side of death metal, the more extreme metal bands like Nile or, you know, Strapping Young Lad or um, even things like Gorguts and Necrophagist and stuff like that, coming back to this, it's like, oh, right, this all makes sense. Um, and there's so much to it which is actually way ahead of its time that yeah, you do yeah. not notice when you first get into it. You know, Renavon coming from 1991, it has amazing production. It sounds incredibly clear for like an album in the early stages of death metal and yet still sounds incredibly aggressive and brutal, but you can hear everything that's going on in it. Yeah, yeah. And it's linked to sort of all the other bands around the time. It was dedicated to Roger Patterson, the bass player Atheist, who yeah, passed yeah. away in the same year. Um, and, it, and as we were discussing just before this, it like formed that basis of so much that goes on ahead of it like the incredibly fast guitars precise double kicks and like rapid fills go on to form like what became that full tech death sort of area which would then become Nile and Necrophagus and Bayamoth like we'll talk about today but then alongside that you had Atheist and Cynic and bands like that who were doing like that jazz influence side so it's really interesting to see this as the birth of that other side of technical death metal. Yeah, I, I think Suffocation are kind of the, the genesis of the really brutal technical metal. Yeah. Because so I had a similar reaction to them. When I first heard Suffocation, I was probably about 16, and I just found Frank Mullen's super guttural vocal delivery just a bit too much. It was that thing I, I had to warm up to bands like that, Deicide as well, and mm. um, so at the time, Nile, I remember first coming yeah. across those super guttural vocals, which is like a bit too much, but now yeah. you go... Like, sort of, after a year or so, I was suddenly, like, completely convinced on it. Yeah. And I think yeah. a lot of what led to that was the extreme technicality behind it. Like, yeah. the, there's, they're a five-piece band, um, and every member is doing totally ridiculous mm. stuff. Like, mm. the bass work on it, and it's really clear as well on Effigies, doesn't really get drowned in the two guitars. Like, the bass work's fantastic. The rhythm guitar works crazy. And then the solos are, like, spectacular as well, but in that kind of 
you know, Cannibal Corpse kind of way where it's really technical but still sounds hideous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the drums as well, uh, with Mike Smith on drums. There's some really cool stuff in this that I haven't noticed until now. Like, there's so many of these really precise double kicks, incredibly mm. fast segments. Bits where it almost sounds like he's doing a flam on the kick drum, which is where you get one beat as a hit slightly before the other one. And it's like the flam is everywhere on like snare drums and toms. You hear it all the time, probably without realizing it. But I was like listening to it thinking, he's doing that on a kick drum. Yeah. What on earth is he doing? But I think it's just because they're so fast in some segments that you get that sort of where it's so fast they're almost the same note, which makes it sound like a flam. Um, but yeah, really interesting stuff. And then like loads of these like lightning fast tom fills. But the production's still so that you can hear everything really clearly. Yeah, the, the work catching his drum performance, I think, is one of the things that really makes this. Mm. And, and and a lot of that's probably on the fact that he played it really well. The yeah. guy's like, actually as well, if you look at albums at the time, he's definitely one of the early innovators with the blast beat. Yeah, He started doing yeah. stuff with like proper blasting technique where... A lot of bands would follow that style, but he's yeah. one of the first guys to really nail it in such a kind of precise manner. Mm. Like the more death metal blast beat versus the kind of, you know, the black metal, yeah. very loose, more atmospheric sounding. Yeah. yeah, and that goes hand in hand with the different production style on a lot of these tech def albums going forward as well, because it would be so clear, you have to get that blast beat spot on or it's going to sound rubbish. And it, yeah. and it fits with the precise nature of everything else that's going on as well. And then the album's really groovy. Yeah, like super in, in catchy. A, in addition, it's got so many of these like really groovy, catchy riffs in it, and it will balance that with sections which are much more aggressive, but not without losing that groove entirely. It's still there. Yeah, yeah. I think as well, like with this first suffocation album, it's such a monumental thing because we just got that perfect moment of free people who hugely want to influence the scene coming together on mm. their first album with. Terence Hobbs on guitar. Like, yeah. Terence was this ultra guitar nerd who spent all this time playing, like, completely obsessive and was so good at what he did and was quite inventive as well. Uh, and then, like, Frank Mullen's, like, sort of take on the guttural vocal. Mm. He's sort of taken that Chris Barnes thing but added more enunciation. It's yeah. not the kind of. Because Chris Barnes just has that kind of, especially in the early Cannibal Corpse days, just almost a wall of sound. Yeah, whereas, yeah, Frank, yeah. you can still kind of get the vo- like the lyrical kind of themes to an extent. Yeah, there's there's more precision there. And it's it's really cool to about this as well, because Corpse Grinder guests on some of the <laughs> yes, tracks. Yes, he does. He? And it's really interesting, because, you know, Corpse Grinder is one of those go-to vocalists now. It's one of the most guttural and brutal vocalists you can think of. And he's phenomenal. But if you listen to it on um, massive, massive... Obliter- obliteration I think it is yeah 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 on this um, he he trades off these bits with Frank Mullen and Frank Mullen sounds so much more aggressive and guttural than Corpse Grinder does and that's just like a weird artifact of history where Corpse Grinder sounds kind of puny it, it's, it's like kind of you can see the evolution as well because recently I've been getting I finally managed to get the copies of the first two Monstrosity albums on mm. CD and his performances, like Corpse Grinder's performances on those early Monstrosity albums, are so different to where he goes with. So, like, isn't it Vile where he first appears in Cannibal I think Corpse? So, right? Yeah, but yeah, like when he first moves to Cannibal Corpse, there is this kind of he gets more guttural. His yeah. vocals yeah. really do change up, and actually, that duel with him and Frank Mullen in um, Suffocation really works. It like, works really well because they're sort of in a similar ballpark, but they have very distinct voices within it. Yeah, um, yeah. and so that trade-off works really nicely. And Frank Mullen's vocals are really good. Like, they're crazy sort of deep and guttural. 
and it and it is still in that sort of sphere where people were finding their voice in this sort of genre. There wasn't a go-to death metal sound like there is today, where you know you have a standard death metal vocals and then you have all the weird people around it doing strange stuff. So he has a very distinct voice within it, and it is that deeper, more guttural and aggressive style of death metal vocals, which would go on, I think, to characterise a lot of the technical death metal bands. Well, you can clearly see the line between suffocation and then that more modern Misery Index, Dying Fetus kind of sound. like that. Yeah. The, so suffocation came out of the New York uh, like death metal scene versus the, you know, the, the kind of the scene Cannibal Corpse and everyone from Florida and so on. It's mm. that kind of like, there was a very different sound to it, and there's a huge amount of influence that was taken from the New York scene. It was just like, you know, a year or two later. It yeah, seemed, it, yeah. Just because it's slightly behind the curve, it doesn't get quite as much recognition. Mm. I think Suffocation are now at that point where they are being hugely recognised. Actually, weirdly, I remember back in like 2005-ish, all the kids who were getting into like Deathcore, you know, the mm. people got really into early job for a cowboy. Yeah. Bought suffocation t shirts. Oh, that right. was a weird thing of like yeah. the Deathcore fans seem to really get suffocation and possibly there is more of a hardcore vibe to their sound. I don't know if I can hear it myself, but Yeah. I, I can certainly see what you mean in a sense. And th- and there's sort of other things that spawn off it as well, as we were saying before, um Legion of Inveracity. Say it properly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the opener to the album, I can't remember the video that I saw this in, but someone pointed out essentially the middle riff in it is the genesis of all slam. Yeah, it's that slam riff that you hear whenever you go to see a slam band of any kind. Um and it's kind of amazing that that all comes off of this. And if you you know, in this album as well, there's bits which sound like what would go on to be called breakdowns. Yeah, yeah. And but the, but you wouldn't you wouldn't recognise it when listening to it. It's only when you really take time you see, oh right, that's where this came from. Um but they do it in a really interesting way, which adds to the sort of like punishing brutality of it all. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that's the thing as well. It's, it it has much of that sort of cannibal corpse vibe of just being an thoroughly brutal album start to finish because you don't have the thing you have with a lot of even very early Morbid Angel where there's let-ups to like really melodic riffs Mm. or or the DSI stuff where it just almost sounds like thrash in places like it doesn't it doesn't have anything that is a hook back to a genre you would have known before assuming you were someone hearing this when it came out in 91 Mm. it is all kind of new sounding death metal and that's kind of awesome and it's got that sort of classic death metal thing I remember when we were talking about um, the the Swedish death metal book and like the sort of hallmarks of death metal that he talks about in that is that sort of weird song structures and the strange time series and that sort of thing and that this definitely has those weird song structures Mm. where it will just stop and then kick off again. It will stop. There'll be a little bass interlude, and then it will just get going again. Um, uh, Infecting the Crypts has got that, where it stops, there's this little bit of bass, and then it just goes right back, blasting in. So it never quite... It's always keeping you a little bit on edge, but at the same time, it's quite groovy. So Mm -hmm. it puts you in that sort of slightly weird state of getting really into it, but at the same time... There's a lot of energy going on, which can go in any direction at any point. And like, say, like a band like Atheist, it's got that, yeah, that kind of hard to follow structure where mm. if you try, however many times you've listened to the song, you go, I couldn't tell you the order of riffs. Yeah. Because there's yeah. about 10 and half of them are like very halfway through and just, just change because it's musicians working at the top of their game. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. In terms of like the suffocation history, like Effigy of the Forgotten is obviously an undeniable masterpiece. Um, personally, I think my favourite of all their albums is actually Pierce from Within, their mm. third album. But they're a band who've certainly kept up for their career and largely very consistent. I mean, yeah. 
I, I'd say I don't know how much of their stuff you listen to outside of like the the classics bits and pieces. So I've I've never got massively hooked on the others. This and Pierce from Within are the ones I know really well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and other than that, it's only been like dipping in and out. Because I would say the second album, whose name escapes me right now, has the issue of the production ruins it. it yeah. It's it's brilliantly written. But like also the really funny thing with their second album, there's they obviously hate it yeah. because almost every song of it has been re-recorded on another album <laughs> subsequently. It's like really strange. Like, okay, yeah. yeah, you clearly weren't happy with how this one turned out. I would say though, gotta admit, I'm at the point where I think I might be more or less done with suffocation because of the lineup changes at this, yeah. this point. Yeah. Like losing Frank from them because I've seen them live about six times. Mm. Half of them with Frank, half of them without. And him not being a live presence of them anymore has somewhat, yeah, just somewhat yeah. lessened the appeal. Yeah. I don't know how you feel on that front. I haven't actually caught Suffocation live, mm. um, which okay. yeah, is something that's really been missing. Um, I've, I've seen quite a lot of their live videos. And yeah. I mean, the shows look really good, but it's just not the same thing as actually seeing them. Yeah. Um, yeah. As I say, like I've never really been able to get properly into the new stuff. Um which is, is possibly just for a lack of trying. But I, and I think maybe because at the time I was getting into Suffocation, it was like the sort of first time getting into death metal properly. Whereas nowadays there's loads and loads of stuff and there's all loads of really interesting variants. Oh yeah, there's so many bands like that where it's like I can fully understand not having kept up on every album. Like mm. most people haven't heard every obituary album. Yeah, like yeah. all those bands that like Suffocation have pretty much continued through like the shit years of death metal and have mm. a back catalogue that's like 10 albums long now. Yeah. There's definitely yeah. <laughs> you, you tend to dip in and out of. Yeah. Like Vader, for fuck's sake. Oh, like, yes. who's so got every much, yeah. Vader album? <laughs> like, I buy one of those every so often, but I just can't buy every can't single one. Because yeah, yeah. they get a little samey. <laughs> I think Suffocation have got more variation. Like, if you mm. listen to like their self-title album, it's quite different sounding mm. to the kind of ones before it. And then, like, Blood Offering, the one the red cover, was really decent again. One of the things that I think is quite interesting about this one as well, particularly at the time when it came out with, you know, Cannibal Corpse now becoming this big force in metal, is um, the lyrics don't have that sort of stereotypical focus on gore and that, you know, slight misogyny that you would get in some of these bands. Chris Barnes... Um, or, but, or the entire slam scene following yeah, it exactly yeah like they're much more sort of like there's um quite a lot of anti-religious sentiment in it in Effigy of the Forgotten the song but they're more sort of like nihilistic and mm. or, like sort of philosophical in a way about the futility of living and that sort of stuff which I can get into so much more um, and I think it matches the sort of tone of the music really nicely and just makes them stand out a little bit yeah, that lyrical yeah. content would obviously become more and more common as death metal continues as you got more and more bands. But it's nice to see them doing that from the outset and not engaging with those sort of tired old tropes. Oh yeah, definitely. And also we, we get to see if you've got the kind of the original version of the CD with the band photo in it, you get to see Frank Mullen's <laughs> prediction of the future wearing his Trump Towers t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, and, and the album's got an amazing cover from mm. Dan Seagrave as well. Oh, it's one of Dan Seagrave's really great ones. This yeah, one. it's this just sort of machine hellscape. Um, in like, it's really it's cool to see it in like this really lurid green color as well. Mm. Um, and like, he's I mean, Dan Seagrave's done so many great covers, like Left Hand Path and Gore Guts and Carnage and Dismember. And I found out recently, I can't, I'm not sure I, how I didn't notice this, but he did River of Niles um, album cover last year as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. 
he's he's like, Dan Seagrave is like still super active. It's, yeah. it's why it's hard to choose like his best cover because oh, yeah. he he's like must be coming up to the thousand yeah. like mark on. <laughs> oh, must be yeah. Like yeah, because he does about he does a, quite a few a year because mm. he's done all the memoriam covers recently mm. and loads of other bands like just in the general death metal scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy is uh, fairly fairly busy, but yeah, this one definitely feels quite. Um, there's definitely a bit of Geigerish stuff with all the eggs going on yeah, as well yeah, yeah, yeah. around like the weird yeah twisted landscapes. Yeah. But yeah, it's an and interesting one. And it fits one. that sort of musical and lyrical theme of like a fucked up future. Um, mm. So yeah, it fits really nicely as a package. But yeah, so we want to talk about this one basically just to show like this is the point where sort of death metal started hitting a proper technical zenith at that point mm. in time. I, I feel because if you look at the, so it was the same point in time the Swedish scene was kicking off. And the Swedish scene, very different in terms in sound. Like, the Swedish scene almost started the push towards black metal with its yeah, more focus yeah. on atmos- atmospheric stuff. Whereas the New York death metal scene, I think, was where we started getting this really push towards the hyper-complex. And the bands we're about to get into are going to be where that hyper-complex suddenly changes. Yeah, and I think it, it's that pushing towards extremes. Because when you're talking about extreme music, it's always about pushing the boundaries of what you can do. So you have the sort of Swedish scene pushing into that atmospheric sort of brutality. You have the New York scene, which is pushing towards that technical just perfection. Of, yeah, it's yeah. it's impossible to believe people can play this. And then at the same time, you've got that sort of more jazz influenced atheist style, which is pushing that like limits of song structures and time signatures and incorporating those weird influences. So it's pushing out in all these different directions. Yeah, sadly though, that sort of the the last one you mentioned, like jazz country, just just kind of came to a stop like, yeah. about two years after this yeah. point. Like, yeah. we're, we're, Atheist and Cynic both fizzled out really fast. Like, mm. Death, unfortunately, came to a, a complete halt as well, not long after that point. Um, yeah, just all the big names and that. And that almost, like, does this weird thing, which we won't cover quite as much, where it's all, that scene disappears for 10 yeah. years yeah. and then suddenly reappears, exactly. like, in the late 2000s. Yeah, it's, it's very strange. Oh, my God. 
Okay, so Rob pretty much alluded to this. The point in time we, we wanted to cover, and I, there's something I've been talking about for a while and kind of mentioned a few times, is there's this thing occurred to me that around 2004, there was an absolute revolution in the sound of extreme metal. And I don't know how much these albums totally inspired it and how much they're almost a symptom of it happening. But there's three albums that came out of, like within less than a year of each other that basically every extreme metal fan owns all three of these. Mm. And if you got into them at the time, it is that point where this suddenly started happening. So the three albums are Necrophagus Epitaph, Behemoth's Demigod, and Nile's Annihilation of the Wicked. And we'll kick off with Necrophagus because this is certainly... I think what inspired the sudden move into tech metal, in tech metal to be yeah. like very flashy solos again, mm. and possibly even partially a reappearance of the guys who loved atheist yeah. doing doing yeah. stuff like that, but not quite. So, Necrophage Epitaph is a follow up to their first album, um, Onset of Putrefaction, from five years prior. Onset of Putrefaction was entirely Mohammed, the lead guitarist and vocalists project he did everything programmed the drums played the bass played all the guitar on mm. it and it's fine like i'm sure yeah. at the time it was very good personally i feel it's dated really badly yeah I, I think going back and listening to both of them sort of side by side this one sounds so much fuller and we'll get into one of the main reasons which i think <laughs> is hannah's grossman on drums um but yeah, there's some amazing ideas in the first album, but I think it gets properly realised in this, particularly as this is like, it's a shorter sort of statement of intent. Mm. It goes in some slightly weirder directions, but it has all of the elements that you can hear on Putrefication there, just like concentrated and with the sort of combined talents of some amazing musicians brought in alongside Mohammed, who is a phenomenal musician. Oh, incredible, Bringing yeah. all these different influences and different talented people together, I think, makes a huge difference. The album sounds so much more real. And, it, like, even for a tech album, which often sound a bit sort of unreal because of the insane, you know, musicianship of the people playing, it does feel like a band, whereas the last album just doesn't. Yeah. I think that makes a huge difference. And so to, to round out the lineup on this, he brought in Christian Munzer, the genius guitarist, um, mm. Stefan Fimmers on bass, who hasn't really done a lot outside this album, and Hannes Grossman on drums. So this is like the kind of group of incredible German musicians. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's sort of, obviously, if you're sort of still into more technical metal, you would have seen Christian Munzer and uh, Hannes Grossman on some albums in your collection. Like, yeah, they've yeah. both been very busy in recent years. Yeah, went on to be big parts of Obscura as well, which became another huge part of that sort of German technical death metal scene. Yeah, um, yeah. And just exploded. And then Hannes Grossman's gone on to be an alkaloid, who I think we think of one of the most interesting <laughs> tech bands around. Well, Christian's an alkaloid as well. Oh, he is, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, like, and Hannes Grossman's now in everything. Like, he recorded five albums last yeah, year, and then at the start of this year, just released a solo album. <laughs> yeah. So somehow, in, the, in the... and has played on Gamora's recent album as well. So. He, he doesn't sleep. He no. does not sleep. I swear. <laughs> but yeah, so so we have a sudden move from clearly programmed drums to Hannes Grossman's performance on this, which is incredible. Like, he's already. M- Already getting a great sound out of his drum kit 
despite yeah. it being at the pace this album's at. And this is one of the things. So he did a whole bunch of like sort of instructional videos back around the sort of late two thousands, where he mm. covered some of the stuff from Necrophages, some of the stuff from Blotted Science, and like went into his like technique and the things he does. And the thing that I've never noticed that he does that now that I've noticed it like makes a huge difference to everything he's played on is his blast beats. The snare is incredibly loud. Yeah. Um, and he does a really good demonstration. He uses this sort of hybrid technique um, of blast beating where the way he trained himself was essentially to do a blast beat and to use each finger individually to train that finger to be able to blast as fast as he wanted to. Oh and then when he combines all of them, it means he can get a huge amount of lift on every hit on the snare. So the snare remains really loud and really high in the mix. Um, and he sort of demonstrates this with what you might think of as a normal blast beat. And you think, that sounds pretty good. And then he does his version. And it's a subtle difference. But the snare being up higher adds so much to the intensity. And I don't think... It, it's really hard to pick it out. But as soon as you've noticed it, you think, right, yeah, this sounds so much better with that loud snare. And since seeing that, I've noticed there's a bunch of other drummers who do a similar thing. I was watching some of the footage, which we'll talk about later, from... Um, David Gray in Agacocca recently, and he gets a huge amount of lift on his blast beats into the snare, like more so than he does when he's playing normal grooves, and it makes a huge difference. It makes everything way more intense. Because that's the bit of the blast beat you want to hear in simple terms, yeah. like yeah. The, the you know the the classic Frank Mullen from Suffocation chop is going along in time with that like like snare sound because of the kicks and cymbals and shit they add to it. But the snare is the core of the blast. That's the risk. If, if the symbol is overpowering the snare, like you're losing essentially what makes a blast beat a blast beat. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and there are some times where that can work, particularly on more atmospheric sections, like more sort of black metal style. But in you know technical, precise death metal, you really want to like hear that snare super clearly. Yeah, yeah. So we should really get into the sound of this album. For any of you who somehow have not come across this, which is totally possible because Necrophagus haven't toured a huge amount and very much kind of petered out after this. The sound of this album is that kind of classic modern tech death, the the widdly tech death, you know, essentially the more wanky end of tech death, which in essence isn't bad, but I could see why it would put some people off. And this album opens with like the absolute statement and intent of Stab Wound, which, you know, kicks in and then the fancy shredding solos and then like... Really quick bass tapping leads, yeah, and, yeah. and then more more sweeping guitar solos. That is one of the things I really like on this, though. The bass is very prominent, and there's mm-hmm. lots of these like little bass tapping sections and the leads with the bass. It adds that extra sort of flavour of what's going on. And similar in a way to we were talking about the jazz led stuff, where the bass became really prominent and mm-hmm. adding to the melodies and these sort of you know main riffs of the album. The bass does that here. And as technical as the guitar can get, the bass will get that technical too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and, and Stefan does an incredible job of keeping up with Christian Mohammed's incredible shredding on this mm, album. Like yeah. the so the centre point of this album, without question, are the guitar solos. Yeah. This album is well and truly about these beautiful but incredibly technical guitar like guitar bits and there's huge space in every song for them most songs don't cross like the five minute mark and are often quite verse chorusy but the middle eights in them is mm. always there's so often like a kind of guitar duel where you get solo from Mohammed, solo from christian solo from Mohammed, bass tapping solo <laughs> solo from, from christian something like that and, <laughs> and it's a lot of a lot of techniques have got more popular in modern metal as well like there's a real high focus on sweeping yeah. and tapping, which, uh, although obviously techniques that have been around forever, I think it was a very big part of tech metal 
in the early 2000s was incredible sweep picking. Yeah, yeah, forming that as that sort of style staple of when you want to do like this sort of amazing kick-ass solo, you would chuck a bunch of sweeping, you'd chuck a bunch of tapping in it, and you'd just turn the speed up to 11. Yeah, yeah. And, and for those, like, if you didn't listen to the episode of Johnny, like, start of last mm. year, uh, sweep picking is that technique that just sounds like kind of... Like, yeah, it, like, yeah. It's, it's like, it sounds like one continuous note that sort of goes up yeah, and down. Yeah, it's going up and down those scales. And it, it is done by one smooth motion yeah. of the pick. But yeah. One of the interesting things I found when I researched this album was actually that Christian Munzer did a fair amount of the writing on this. So the, yeah. Yeah, last album was obviously just Mohammed doing mm. everything. But on this album, um, Christian Munzer in interviews has said that, you know, a lot of the um, bass tapping sections as well, a lot of the bass lines, he wrote. So that okay. sort of famous bit on Stab Wound was actually written by him. Um, as well as a lot of the lead sections that he plays. So there's a, like extra influences that are coming into here and the influences that you then see coming through in loads of other bands afterwards, which I, is one of the things I think helps make this album more of a complete package, is it just has that greater breadth of you know input from different people and clearly incredibly talented musicians yeah, as well. Yeah, and I think there's something about how Christian writes his leads. Like the scales he uses or something on those lines makes them sound more interesting. They do yeah. have that... You, that, that thing we'll get to more when we cover Nile in a bit, but that slightly Eastern scales influence yes. in yeah, them, yeah. which um, ages back we mentioned um, Marty Friedman sort of mm. brought that in on Megadeth, yeah. and that made Megadeth's lead playing just sound that bit more interesting because it's not yeah. the standard way of approaching kind of modern metal shredding. And then, yeah, Christian is then... <laughs> sort of added that again here and it just yeah. and obviously Mohammed must be doing similar because mm. I couldn't tell you who does what solo no. on this, this album at all and I, think, I think one of one of the differences I noticed as well is while the solos are still sort of breakneck paced there is more melodicism going on here than on Putrefication the previous album yeah yeah um, like there are more solos where it sl- slows down a little bit and has more of those sort of melodic motifs going through it um, whereas the previous album does just go a bit insane sometimes. <laughs> and it can be hard to pin down what's happening. Whereas even in the craziest bits of this album, I feel there's still some level of restraint. Yeah, this yeah. isn't an album which, you know, unlike some of the others we might talk about today, is seeking to bludgeon you. It's, yeah, and, and this is going to sound like I'm criticising it, but it's almost more of a technical showcase, but doing it in a in a way that has a lot of emotion to it. So it's got like an interesting comparison with stuff like um, I don't know if you've ever heard the first Animals as Leaders album, oh, which yeah. is just yeah. that um, Tobias. Is it Tobias? Um, uh, I know Tossin. Uh, I think um, yeah, it's just essentially him showing off. It's, yeah. it's entirely his project, and that album is really interesting. But it's like seventy minutes long, oh. and it's too much. Yeah. Whereas this album's only about half an hour, yeah. and while it's it's definitely a technical showcase album, and I know a lot of people hate it for being that wanky, mm. but those that like it, like myself, just think it's beautiful and melodic, and yeah. it doesn't overstay its welcome. Definitely it, not. And, and there's some really cool like things going on underneath all that as well. There's some really interesting riff structures that, when you describe this album as that sort of insane level of technicality, you wouldn't expect. And um, when you get to the Stillborn one, the second track, you're like, ah, oh, this is like a weirdly slow riff. Yeah, yeah. It's like weirdly sinister. What's happening here? And then it will put some of those, you know, crazy guitar and bass parts over the top. But the core of the song is really different to that. And I like that it's got that variation. And you've got tracks like Seven as well, which are like based around these really cool grooves. Yeah, yeah. Which then build over the top. So there's like, in terms of the songwriting from Mohammed and Christian, there's actually loads going on here. Yeah, and actually it doesn't, 
It doesn't ever feel like it's desperately trying to be fast. No. It's quite a mid-paced album. Yeah, which is very strange, actually. Considering how technical it's trying to be. A a lot of it, particularly songs like Stab Wound, they'll feel really fast when you get into them. But when you look at the whole album and you listen to it in sequence, you think, yeah, this is much more mid-paced than something like Nile or Behemoth or something. And I think some of it is... So we haven't really mentioned, like, uh, Hammond's vocals on it, so it's very kind of... Sort of one-dimensional, but... Not in a bad way, but this kind of very guttural, low voice. And mm. his vocal patterns are often really slow over it. He goes yeah. to, he goes for lots more long, drawn-out notes rather than, like, say, with Frank Mullen and Suffocation, just faster passages a lot of the time. It's a really interesting contrast. And it's interesting to see the sort of style that tends to emerge within this technical bit of death metal. Mm. I think with all the four albums we've got to date, it's that low rasp. There's, there's Behemoth for a bit different, but there's nothing that's really high-pitched. You don't tend to get the super high screams. You don't even tend to get anything particularly mid-range. It all sits in this low area, which seems to feed into, with this album a little less so, but with a lot of the others, this sort of wall of guitar noise that yeah, you get. Yeah. Um, and it just seems to sit in the mix really nicely with this style of music. Yeah. And, and then, as you say, I really like that contrast between the fast technical stuff that's going on with the guitar and then the long, drawn-out notes. It just draws your attention in an interesting way. Yeah, yeah. And so, I think, in terms of like the history of this album, if you got into this, say say you're a bit younger, like, like Rob is, like, you probably didn't get into this when it came out in 2004. Like, if you heard this in 2010, yeah, there are other bands that sound like this now. This is not... That this album has definitely been replicated many, many times mm-hmm. by other bands. But at the point in time when this came out, I don't think there was anything that quite sounded like this. I mean, I've heard a lot of, as well, of these modern tech death musicians interviewed saying they heard this album and suddenly changed their mind about yeah. what they wanted to play. This was a total revolution for them because they'd not seen this kind of lead guitar focus in very extreme metal to the same extent. Like... A lot of those older death metal bands, you look at early, like, Deicide or Suffocation, they don't have the melodicism in the no, guitar no, at all. No. Like, that's that's kind of quite anti what they're doing. So Deicide would later actually bring that in if you look at um, Stench of Redemption where they mm. got rid of the Hoffman brothers and brought in uh, Jack from Cannibal Corpse and yeah. Ralph. Um, they Suddenly, they go down almost a Necrophagus direction yeah. with their kind of really flashy lead work. Yeah, because it, it isn't a punishing album. In many ways, he's no. bringing in lots of different influences, um, and actually, I'd say it's quite a good one if you want to get people into those impenetrable guttural vocals. Mm. These wouldn't really put you off because no. they're not, for whatever reason, they just sort of serve the music. You can get your head around that yeah. whole thing of vocals as like a third kind of part of the percussive rhythm section. Yeah, yeah, that sort of yeah. It's about the rhythms that they're giving you, and particularly the contrast here is really stark. Yeah, I yeah. think it helps get that concept across. Whereas if the vocals are replicating the incredibly fast, aggressive music, it's harder to draw that distinction mm. in your mind. Sadly, with this, there I'm now convinced there won't be a follow up. Yeah, like Mohammed kept sort of teasing one sort of about six years back yeah, or so yeah. now, but I, I think and there'd be no point now. It's. It could not live up to the... To, well, to the years and years and years of waiting for the third Necrophagus album. Yeah, it's going to be the, exactly the same thing Winter Sun had when they came back. Yeah. It's like, you teased that album for 12 years and time <laughs> was fine. Like, yeah, it, it, yeah. I listened to it like twice. And it, and like, I think if they'd come out with something that was slightly less good two years after their first album, 
I probably would have loved it. But yeah, yeah. yeah there's, there's, there is that kind of thing of almost, if you split up and call it a day and then reform, people give a shit and yeah, we'll give it a go. Yeah. But if you kind of keep teasing that you're doing something <laughs> and nothing happens, people get bored. Yeah, it's weird. It, it either has to be the best album they've ever heard, like to blow all your other work out of the water and do something really crazy. And even then, probably a lot of people will hate it because it's not right. But, you yeah. know, it, there's, it's really hard to win when you have that sort of time gap. But also as well, at the time, this was mind-blowingly technical. But we now have bands like Archspire yeah. who, who are taking the, that yeah. kind of the really kind of fast, sweeping, shreddy elements of this and pushing it to the nth degree. Mm. Even, like, with the vocals suddenly shredding <laughs> as well at that, that point. So, and, and I do think... I would be amazed if, say, the Archfire guitarists were not influenced by this oh, album. Yeah. Like, it seems almost impossible to be in that sphere of technical death metal and not have had Necrophage just have a big influence on what you play. Yeah, but I, I do think this album is where... That kind of scene of American and Canadian bands, stuff like Infuri, uh, in how if you say the name of that band, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, uh, like bands like that are definitely. This is the point I think where mm. a lot of them went. Oh, we want to do something in this vein. is Behemoth's Demigod, which again came out in 2004. Now, Behemoth are a really interesting band um, who have been around for ages, and this was sort of the album that catapulted them up there to being that band that is just known by everyone yeah, who's into extreme death metal. 
I remember when this came out, they suddenly, like, it's, like, yeah. not so much exploded, but in the extreme scene, suddenly mm. exploded. And got them to that point where now, you know, their albums are getting 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10 reviews, um, and they're headlining festivals, and they are just a band that everyone knows. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, to a large degree, they've remained pretty consistent and really good across all of that time, but this was the point where they really put themselves on the map. And it's a really interesting album. There's sort of like a lot of... Well, there's some controversy around the vocals on the album in particular that I've oh, seen. Oh, really? Um, so, Behemoth are made up of um, Nurgle, who is guitar and vocals. Um, Orion, who is a like gigantic, enormous, <laughs> godlike bass player. Um, and then Inferno on drums and percussion. So, they're this sort of tight-knit group of three. Um, but they have a, you know, a lot of additional guitar tracks and stuff like that to make this enormous sort of monstrous sound. Um, and on this album, Nurgle does some sort of double tracking of his vocals, the most obvious point being at the beginning of Slave Shall Serve, where he just makes this hideous, like, monstrous noise of his, like, like low breaching into mid-range, but not very traditional death metal, sort of like a wider frequency range style vocals but there's a lot of it on the rest of the album as well and I know yeah. that there is some controversy about this people don't really like it so I like we'll get into more of this but I just want to touch this, yeah. on this now I think it's totally reasonable because like he's obviously had a lot of distortion to his vocals in places because he's trying to make an incredibly harsh mm. noise on this album but yeah there is all that vocal double triple tracking but as a live band Seth their live guitarist who's also like the secret fourth member who does most mm. of the solos um, and acoustic guitar work on the albums, but it's always credited as a guest. <laughs> he does loads of backing vocals, and Orion does loads of backing vocals live. So it's completely recreated. Like, Orion's a good enough death metal vocalist. Mm. He fronts other bands. Yeah. I think Seth might front a band as well. Like, they, Nurgle is not having to... <laughs> the, the only thing they do slightly cheat on live is that aforementioned uh, Slave Shall Serve intro that always plays a backing track. Like, <laughs> but, but then it's just meant to be chaotic yeah, noise. It's yeah. not, they're not, they're clearly not trying to show off in the vocal department. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I thought that was an interesting remark because there's a lot of discussion about it online. I think it works quite well on the album and as you say, they do, they do replicate this live to like an extent where it's not distracting because it, Particularly when you have, well, we're talking about suffocation, you've got that very beginning of death metal and particularly mm. technical death metal where people are finding their feet with completely different vocal styles from suffocation to death to things like um, Demi Lich where you just have these ridiculous range of different things. But now we've moved into the point where death metal is much, much more established and there is a sort of standard death metal voice. Yep, yeah. Which like, isn't necessarily a bad thing, but sometimes that variation that you had in the early scene can be really good. And what Nur Nurgle has a unique enough voice himself, but adding this extra element, it just makes it sound really different. And it sounds like this sort of horrible mythological monster. You know, it's you can hear that it's a person, but it's hard to recognise it as a voice almost. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that works really well, particularly over the top of how like huge this album sounds. Like it, for you know three, four people, it's enormous. The sort of grandiose, like epic nature of the riffs they have combined with the, again, incredibly clear drums, really fast kick drums, um, incredibly quick blast beats as well, and the lightning fills around the kit with yeah. these just huge atmospheric riffs, which then explode into incredibly fast, you know, death metal sections. But it's got that slight, slight black metal influence in those huge atmospheres. So the, this would be the start of that thing as well. I think Niall as well would about to cover. Um, it's that 
where the drummer suddenly became the complete like kind of central focus of a band mm. like i always remember seeing reviews of like kind of the middle period uh behemoth albums leading up to this one where people were like oh but like inferno is incredible inferno mm. is such a good drummer and his drum performance is completely the core of this because now like this i do think had a huge influence on modern technical metal despite actually most of the guitar and bass work is very untechnical yeah it's yeah. just the drum performance is technical on this album um some history to them as well like if you're not so familiar because behemoth actually have 12 albums yeah. now it, they've been going since 1991 and their first three albums are well not traditional black metal they're black metal mm. then possibly my all-time favorite album there is satanica their fourth album this huge change comes into their sound where they suddenly become essentially a death metal band with some black metal tinges mm. where they focus more on down-tuned guitars and complex drum grooves and Nurgle's vocals start becoming less and less what you would deem a traditional black metal voice. And as you, the kind of three albums leading up to Demigod, you see the evolution of his yeah. voice into this point where, it, as I say, adding layers of distortion just to make it horrendous harsh noise yeah it sort of brings that yeah i haven't thought about it this way but it sort of brings that like black metal rasp into a death metal vocal yeah in yeah a strange way it's it's really interesting and i do think demigod is kind of the culmination of a lot of elements they were trying to get mm. together in their sound like the two albums prior to this i don't know if you're that familiar with them i think are both really patchy mm. particularly the album before uh zokir cultus is like mm. There's ideas that would later come together on Demigod, but it's yeah. just a boring album. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, yeah, this one isn't. And I think it's a really interesting thing that I wanted to pick up on in this episode in general is how crucial drumming becomes to technical metal. Yeah, And yeah. It's, it's that thing of, and we'll talk about it more, Nile, I'm sure, where when people think about metal, and particularly technical metal, if you're not really into it, the thing that they get is that speed and that is shown no better than by drummers and particularly drummers doing blast beats and double kicks because it is the thing that you find in no other genre. Yeah. They are techniques that are done and blast beats you pretty much find nowhere else. Double kicks you do find in other genres but never used in the same way as metal for that just sheer punishing speed. It's the sort of thing you would show someone who's not into metal just to look, it's hard to believe how quick this guy can move. Yeah, and yeah. Inferno's definitely like that. And this feeds into this like sort of crystal clear drum production on almost all of these albums where you can hear all the individual hits. Sometimes this is where bands become too clicky with their drums and it loses that weight. But I don't think this happens, particularly not on Demigod. It has a huge amount of weight. Well, because it's not a that clear album, actually, because of the amount of layering and stuff going mm. on in it. It's actually a slightly muddy production. Yeah. But that kind of gets forgotten because... The, the thing they really brought with this, which I think a lot of bands have taken away, is suddenly epic. Yeah, like, yeah. It, it, and this is epic in a way none of their previous albums were, and all their follow-up albums are trying to be. Like it's got it's got those like stringed and acoustic instruments. It's got the chanting and and like choirs and things like that. It's bringing in these sort of like slightly eastern influences, which j just like shake up the way the songs are written, as mm. we were saying, with different scales and things like that. It's new sounds that you're not used to hearing in this genre. And then 
add that into a lot of the structures of a lot of the songs is you'll have these slightly slower paced riffs and um, often with like super fast double kicks underneath which will then break into a really like fast section and then back into these epic sections yeah yeah and they have no fear of moving away from the fast like so mm. one of the two video singles of the albums is Conquer All I think that was the yeah. first one they released Conqueror is a really slow song, mainly just based around these kind of sliding octave chords, which yeah. are, are something that then I think, I think like uh, Nile and uh, Behemoth both kind of set them up as a staple sound in yeah. music of just these chords that just by their very nature sound epic. I don't know yeah. what it is. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like doing a riffs just around these few of these chords suddenly sounds really mm. big, and mm. so many bands are started incorporating them now. Yeah. And there's and there's another element to the sort of drums on this, and the Inferno's cymbal work is also really nice. Mm. Even the little subtle things. So when you have these building riffs, which are bring, bringing it up to that big sort of epic crescendo, he does really like nice little work on the ride cymbal and chinas, and you crashes like these little things. And the other stuff he does, and you see this on pretty much all of the albums he's on, is he can just do these insanely fast cymbal rolls, which is almost like a unique thing for him. He'll bring them in with like really fast cymbals and double kicks at the same time underneath riffs as part of his like normal grooves. And you just don't hear people doing that very often. It's in quite a structured way, so it's not like that sort of jazz where you're moving around the cymbal a lot and putting some weird syncopation on it. It's just incredibly fast sort of single and double notes. Yeah, um, yeah. Which like adds these little bits of texture. And, you know, it, it's almost like in the places where you might have gongs and stuff like that, you have these little sort of cymbal splashes, which is really, really nice and adds to that feeling of building throughout these huge riffs. Yeah, and, and just something else to have going on because the guitar work isn't that flashy. Like We get the odd solo and so on and actually some of, some of the lead work while... Mm. Nothing like the necrophagia's kind of yeah. sweeping ridiculousness is kind of incredible, but a lot of the main riffing stuff is quite imitatable riffing. It's just mm. they, there's enough other elements like like Nurgle's vocal performance, like the kind of layered like orchestral stabs occasionally and bits mm. of subtle keyboard work that make this sound super interesting and far more complex than maybe the sum of like the individual parts might be. Talking to the lead work though, I want to get into this stuff like there is some real, almost like old school heavy metal style yeah. lead work. Like yeah. the aforementioned Conquer All, the br- like the break into the solo in the middle of that is the most like <laughs> you know guitarist wanting to put his foot up on one of the monitors yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. hey, everyone, look at me! I'm going to do something that sounds cool. <laughs> moment. Yeah, I think it does. In a way, this is sort of that point where this technicality that started off with suffocation is now beginning to bring in all of these other influences it's bringing in that black metal it's bringing in those like sort of slight classic rock influences it's bringing in new instruments i think the thing that i found with suffocation is it's actually this really pared back sort of stripped out formula of this is what we're doing we're doing this super technical stuff and then when we get to behemoth they've explored it in a way where they've brought in loads of other elements to explore different areas with a similar thing but then in doing that, they've essentially stripped back the guitars because otherwise I think well, it would just be a mess yeah. if you had... And, and they know the right moments to let them loose. You get stuff like the end of Nephilim, Nephilim Rising is mm. one of my absolute favourite moments of the album of after a kind of, what is a, at this point in time, more traditional behemoth song, it goes into this cool lead guitar passage with a really catchy, memorable bit and then has this incredible acoustic guitar outro yeah. which is... Like complex and technical, but also really atmospheric. Like the whole mm. of that song is incredibly atmospheric, and a lot of the songs have that nature to them, where 
rather than being totally bludgeoning, they have just an atmosphere. And then mm. you get some of Slaves Shall Serve, which strips away the atmosphere and yeah. just hits <laughs> yeah. you over the head. And that yeah. kind of shift means there's just so much to remember in this album. Yeah. It's yeah. really fun and engaging. And to say as well, this isn't to say that like the guitars are easy on this album. Like Some of the alternate picking and stuff is like really extreme. And you know the level of precision that's going on here is crazy. It's just when you're comparing them to bands like Necrophagist, which is an unfair comparison for anyone, <laughs> yeah, yeah. really. Yeah, Nurgle's not a tech musician, essentially, but Behemoth have managed to kind of shift themselves into that camp. And I think this album did really well in pushing forward the idea of like black and death metal, which is mm. now just a totally normal sound. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there were other bands doing it. Obviously, Belfagor were well into their career mm. at this point. Um, but like these guys certainly took that kind of epicness of black metal and paired it with just brutal death metal riffing. Yeah, and there's been a lot like you hear examples of this so often now, and and actually, I think it's one of the albums that made it okay for bands to start dropping in like orchestral symphonic bits yeah. over brutal death metal. Yeah, yeah. Previously, that's just the domain of sort of like the nerdy black metal people, whereas people in death metal were just about pummeling you. Yeah, but then yeah. It, it builds that sort of bridge between the two, and then the influence of that super tight and precise drumming, which is very, often very different to what you get in black metal. But now that's not always the case in Black Matter. You will have some, not necessarily sounding the same, but very clear, very precise, incredibly technical drumming. Yeah. I think, though, we sort of alluded to this is the album that sort of at least put that career trajectory of Behemoth going. Like, this was the one they suddenly got very noticed seven albums into their career. Um, the interesting thing is, I think a lot of that is this is the album where they finally got their stage look just down. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they went from being a band, like if you watch early videos of them or say they've got an old DVD called Crush Fuck Create, which is <laughs> is amazing. It's got, yeah. a, it's got a film of them tour, which is the most raw, drunken <laughs> mess. It is well worth a watch. But you look at their stage performances then, it's a lot more messier corpse paint and like random bits of spiky armour. Mm. Whereas like when you're at this point where like They've got these great suits of like interlocking leather armor, but yeah, the, the yeah. makeup's incredible. Like they have all this stage gear, the banners, and so on. And from this album onwards, they'll just keep doing super engaging kind of mm. visual stuff. And mm. to some extent, it does mean there's a load of poser value to this as well. Like loads of kids like myself got into being because they saw a picture and went, yeah, "I want to like yeah. that band. They look cool." <laughs> Particularly when you see someone like Orion wearing armor because he's like six foot eight or something, <laughs> and he ju- he's just this huge, giant Polish man who looks amazing. <laughs> yeah, they, they sort of they have an incredible look to them, and I, I would say um, they're a band who have shifted between some of the best and worst of doing the visual stage imagery, like. Their new show is, I, reports back, I've not seen the current tour, mm. but reports back are they're kind of hampered by it to some extent. Whereas I saw them doing the Satanist in full, and that was beautifully artistic. I actually mm. thought it was kind of amazing. And survived Daylight at a festival. Yeah, like, that's still, quite still looked amazing. Whereas, I, like, yeah, I think the same festival, I saw 1349 in the daylight on the main yep, stage yep. and that looks so bad yeah like, like, like yeah I remember seeing 1349 it was really good but at the same time it's like this just feels wrong <laughs> the music works but the look you're like oh, you, this almost would work better if you weren't wearing the makeup and yeah, hoods yeah, and yeah. stuff <laughs> yeah yeah um, but yeah so like, like I guess there's pretty much most things I want to cover in terms of Behemoth sound because this would probably be one of the few times I actually cover them. I was going to ask from where mm. do you stand on their albums as a whole? Like, what are your 
what are your kind of thoughts on like do you know most of their albums or most of it so I mean I got into them it was a weird journey getting into them actually because I started off with um, Telema 6 I think yeah yeah, which is which is a bizarre album, and it's got loads. It's got the weirdest David Bowie cover. I, I'm not sure about that cover <laughs> at all. It's really strange, but it, and it's got that way more sort of like black metal rasp to the vocals, which then evolved into me getting into like Evangelion when that came out. Yeah, getting yeah. Getting really into bits of that, um, but like it just feels a little stale. I find sometimes like it's a really good album, and particularly songs like. Um, of Fire and the Void. Like, yeah. I love that song. And that's where like, I really noticed sort of Inferno symbol work being incredible. Um, uh, and then The Satanist was really good. The um, Satanist, I do think, was a real sort of return to form for them. Yeah. Where, like, that's possibly like one of their career highlights. Uh, yeah, because they tried something quite new. And then um, I haven't given... I, I've given like the latest one a little bit of a listen. Um, I was slightly put off by the shit song titles they keep doing. Oh my god, yeah. The, <laughs> the new one, I would say, is just awkwardly... like It's got some of the great stuff from their older stuff and some really like just dodgy, mm. newer stuff. It feels like they're trying to appeal to a newer fan base, which is totally working. Yeah. Because they're currently, you know, currently toured without the gates and support. Yeah. Like, yeah. they've obviously, like, transcended. Because, you know, back when Demigod came out, they weren't the biggest extreme no, metal band no, in Poland. No. It yeah. was Vader. Yeah. Now Vader now are Vader a footnote to, yeah. to Behemoth. Vader are supporting bands like Overkill and stuff like that. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. But so I, I would say with, with the albums we're coming today, I would say Demigod is the one that's aged the worst. I think elements of it... Yeah. I, I think it's the one, because a lot of bands have copied it and done elements of that sound better... I personally, my, my kind of feeling on being they're a band I don't listen to as much anymore because I don't, I don't think their stuff's held up quite as well as say, say like contemporaries like Nile, like Nile yeah. against their stuff, and it's still I think, amazing. I think but, it's that interesting thing, and I'm sure we'll discuss a lot with Nile is where Nile seem completely unique. There's no one who's managed to get that sound. And, and to an extent, Behemoth sound quite unique as well, but there are a lot of bands who have done a very similar thing, like um, Sulfuric Aeon, for example, yeah, yeah, are, are a really cool band who are essentially doing a similar thing. The vocals sound a bit different, but the rest of it is really similar. Or Hate are completely yeah. doing the same thing. And mm. moments of Hate's discography is easily as good as moments of Behemoth's. Yeah. Overall, it's not as good, but... Yeah. And there's still, like, don't get me wrong, there's still moments of Behemoth I think are incredible. I j- for some reason, this just sounds... A bit more dated to me and I yeah. don't know what that is no I, I don't know either but I think I definitely agree uh, I think mean, there's some really interesting stuff going on we haven't even touched on like um, uh, they they work a lot with a poet uh, oh god I've just read, <laughs> I've just looked at his name and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna survive this well but like they work closely with a poet slash translator occultist philosopher so mm. the lyrics have this really cool kind of Satanist philosophy going on in them, which makes you know, is such was a really interesting change at the time from the kind of, you know, deicide. Yeah. Oh, isn't God stupid? Yes, oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. kind of angle, which is is fun and certainly has its place. But, but it's, it's quite cool to ex- explore those concepts in a bit more depth and actually get into the philosophy surrounding it. And you know, Nurgle do Nurgle does loads of stuff like that on social media as well. Mm. They're an interesting band from the perspective of their stage shows where they'll burn Bibles and things like that, and have got you know been they've been arrested and put in, put on trial by the Polish government many times. Because Poland is a very Catholic country. 
and, and they're very much, particularly Noel is one of those people who will not give in to all these things. And, you know, mm. that he's really prominent in supporting things like abortion rights in Poland. And they have that sort of political element to them in a way of challenging the establishment, which I think is a really nice thing to see a big metal band doing stuff like that. Yeah. Although, I don't have a pinch of salt, he was recently pictured with the frontman of Graveland. Oh, yeah, I did, I did see <laughs> yeah. this. Yeah. Which, so, yeah. hopefully he's not an Nazi, but yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of... I don't want to cast dispersions yeah. there particularly. But this, like, yeah, so certainly this was an interesting album at the point in time, and I think the influence has been hugely felt. Mm. Um, it's just, yeah, possibly has dated a bit badly. Personally, though, I still love Demi. Like, the three I listen to of theirs still are Satanica, because it's mm. brutal and to the point and still really catchy. This one and the Satanists, I still give a lot of time. Because yeah. Satanists are really melodic. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Without yeah. being too cheesy. I mean, mm. the last track might cross into the pantomime <laughs> ridiculous. But yeah, they sort of, they are at that point now, they're slightly walking the fine line of like cradle of filth level silliness. Yeah, or but, sort of becoming Dimu Borgir or something yeah. like that. <laughs> but yeah. for the most part, I, I think this is, this is really interesting and there's a lot they did that you can just see metal just suddenly changes, at least in the yeah. very extreme yeah. direction after this album. Yeah. 
so that brings us to the third of this trio of albums that kind of led the new wave of extreme metal. Uh, and this is possibly the most important of the lot. Released in 2005, this is Nile's fourth album, Annihilation of the Wicked. So Nile formed in 1993, um, and Carl Sanders has been previously playing a few thrash bands. And if you look at the really early Nile demos, they essentially started off as a thrash band. But then he got very into Lovecraft and just like Egyptian history and mythology mm. and kind of wanted to do that. He said uh, like early on, he spoke to a guitar teacher saying, like, what scales can I use to sound Egyptian? And the guitar teacher didn't have a good answer. So he just sort of made up his own, which I think, <laughs> I think are other scales, but he just didn't know them. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, 1993 were well before the birth of the internet. Like, the yeah. internet is a kind of useful home commodity. Yeah, if you didn't know someone who was able to tell you this stuff, you didn't really have anywhere to go. Yeah, so um, so he sort of found all these scales and started writing very fast, very aggressive uh, death metal with a kind of Egyptian feel to it. And mm. a lot of a lot of listeners, like almost all of you, I imagine, will own Annihilation of the Wicked and know Newer Nile. But I've discovered a lot of people don't know the first three albums at all. Mm. Like, yeah, like, it's quite a common thing of like, they start Annihilation of the Wicked and go yeah, forward. Because it, it is quite a contrast. Like, the sound of the album, like, changes dramatically when we reach this point. Actually, all four of the first nine albums are a completely different sound each album. Mm. The first one is this really aggressive to the point, almost like grind structures of, like, minute and a half long songs. Uh, and then the second album goes way more down the route of bringing in all these atmospheric... Mm. Um, Influences lots of chanting, lots of more traditional Egyptian instruments. Um, but yeah, like uh, they, Carl actually plays something called a balmasaz and a, a bazooki on these albums, which are yeah. just. I'm, I'm amazed you got the pronunciation of those. I had no idea how to. Oh, that, that could be completely <laughs> wrong. But um, yeah, he plays these two like more traditional instruments. They're worth looking up actually because both have a super interesting sound and mm. if you're an aspiring guitarist I think they're quite playable if you know how to play yeah. guitar so they might be something you want to pick <laughs> up uh, I'm kind of tempted um, but yeah so Carl led the band as the main guitarist and vocalist and eventually on Black Seas of Vengeance the second album teamed up with Dallas Tolawade, mm. who actually became the lead vocalist yeah. over yeah, Carl yeah. Carl then took a more not quite backing but definitely secondary vocalist mm. position then I think the real culmination of that early sound was um, in the Dark and Shrines, which is an absolute masterpiece of an album, but different drummer. Yeah, and this is where yeah. the, the big changes. This album, Annihilation of the Wicked, they bring in George Colias on drums, a Greek drummer who is incredibly technically gifted, and they go from being this thing where the drums are fast but locking down the sound to much like Behemoth, the drums suddenly mm. become the focal point of the album. Yeah. George Goliath is one of those people who, when you want to show someone a technical drummer, you show them any George Goliath video and like the speed of his double kicks and the speed of his fills and the blast beats that he does will just blow people's minds. Yeah. The guy yeah. is an absolute machine, but he's far more creative than he appears on first watch. Yes. Like, there's a yes. lot of stuff he does with the toms, which is really cool. He does some really like interesting grooves where he'll bring the toms in as well. And he will slow down massively, like towards the end of this album on the song with the German title. Um, von Unspeakable Kulten. Yes, of Unspeakable Cults. Uh, he like slows down massively and does this groove that wouldn't be out of place in a doom band. Like He's not a drummer who is there to just prove that he can play super fast. He's a drummer who plays to the music 
and the intensity and epicness of Nas music drive these incredibly fast double kicks and these, you know, fills which focus a lot on like your much deeper toms, which mm. create this like rumbling sound and because he can move so fast through them as well. You know, he is he is an amazing drummer and I think he completely changes up Nile just because he can put so much in. And this is not to say that Nile have had bad drummers in the past. They've had incredible drummers. They are all good, but... But George Colias is just something else. He is one of those drummers who is pretty much acknowledged by everyone to be one of the best in the game. Yeah, yeah. He, he I think he was a revelation in extreme metal at this point mm. in time because of the production job he got as well where he's so... On this album, like this is the huge difference between this and in the Dark and Shrines. Is in the Dark and Shrines sounds a bit rough and ready. Mm. This is just perfectly produced. Like everything is so clear on it. Maybe the bass is a little better. I say the bass is a little low because the bass is much louder on Dark and Shrines. Way louder, yeah. And yeah, that's possibly the only flaw with particularly the production of this album is it could use a little more bass. But, but the thing, the thing uh, Niall do and like sort of have over most bands as genre is. They somehow, however technical they be, their being, create an atmosphere and yeah. keep it atmospheric. The album starts amazing, amazingly with um, like a fifty-second intro of like acoustic guitar yeah. over these slightly yeah. like atmospheric, um, possibly keyboard. Like mm. I'm not sure exactly what's making all the noises on this, but it sounds very Egyptian-y. And Carl Sanders has got so into this; he's released two whole solo albums of just this atmospheric kind of Egyptian sounding music. Uh, yeah. Have you ever heard them? No, I haven't. Actually. That oh, they're amazing. Really cool. they're, yeah. they're really, really good. As yeah. somebody who does D&D stuff yourself, yeah. like yeah, definitely yeah. good background music but for see, that. Yeah, cause, particularly because like, there's a lot of instrumental stuff on a lot of Nile albums. You'll have these little sections. There's one on this as well, which is um, Spawn of Wilmenti, which is, you know, like a minute, minute and a half long yeah yeah um and then there's things like on the next time you've got things like infinity of sand where it brings in all of these you know different instruments that carl sanders can play with these like key elements and then with like the sound effects of like monsters or serpents and stuff yeah. like that or I, chanting vocals i like, really buried yeah. like distant chants i really love those bits like they're so atmospheric and the way that i'll do them which tends to be really nice is they don't last forever, yeah, and there's yeah. not that many of them. You know, they and particularly this one because it comes towards sort of, I guess, like two thirds through the album. Yeah, yeah. Um, just before the two sort of giant epics at the end, it it forms a nice break in what otherwise is like very intense, like both in terms of the speed and the punishing nature of the music, but also in terms of just like the epic riffs that are happening and like these enormous journeys and gigantic eight minute long songs which go from really fast breakneck guitars and like this wall of low guitar noise through to you know these like slower and really heavy sections it gives you that little bit of time to break while completely reinforcing the atmosphere and that's what Niall have always had an atmosphere that almost no well pretty no other band replicates no no completely like they the, he is so well nailed that Lovecraftian like horror sound yeah. it's essentially Niall's general sound and like this album then kicks off after that instrumental I mentioned into just straight shredding metal like mm. the, the first track the first track proper Cast Down the Heretic is insane yeah, like, yeah, it, yeah. and it is like that thing of like if you were about the time because I got into them a bit after this came out but I imagine if you were a fan from In the Dark and Shrines and bought this this is why this album will be forever loved more than anything else because yeah. the people who were surprised by this when Cast Down the Heretic died I can't imagine <laughs> yeah. what the feeling would have been suddenly getting yeah. that noise out of your speakers like, yeah. every, like the drum performance is incredible the, the guitar riffing is so fast and precise 
but still sounds really cool. Still yeah. sounds really catchy. It just gets this like low rumble. I mean, you can hear everything very clearly, but there's a lot of sort of very low notes which is moved around in sort of a lot of the general riffs at incredible speed. But it it sounds like this sort of I don't know this unknowable horrible thing rumbling towards you. And Noel are this album as well. It's one of the heaviest things. Like particularly mm. at the time, you pick this up, you think this is the heaviest thing you've ever heard because it's fast. And like really low and like punishing, but then it will also get really slow and yeah. just crush you with these riffs that feel like like really aggressive doom. Yeah, I remember back in like two thousand five, two thousand six, seeing the video for um, uh, Sacrifice Under Sebek oh, and, yeah. and finding the vocals hilarious. Yep. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Sacrifice Under Sebek was the first Nile I was exposed to as well, and I just couldn't get it. <laughs> Yeah, because because you have that thing of like Dallas does most of the vocals on it, and she's got this really deep but kind of penetrable guttural mm. growl. And you're like hearing that as a kid, you're like, that is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. And then Carl does some vocals that are just like <laughs> just off the scale, even lower. Yeah, like because because um, there are three vocalists on town. So there's Carl Dallas, and then John Vassano, the bass player, does a little bit of vocals. As he, well. he, d- he does a fair amount actually. Yeah. Like he's he's sort of almost undercredited with. And it's it's one of those things where like. If you listen to it for the first time, and particularly if you don't, if you don't really know what you're getting into, you'd be you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold it against you for thinking it's the same guy, because yeah. like they're all in that same sort of ballpark. And then as you start to get used to it, you can pick out that Dallas is a little bit higher than Carl's just sort of bellow, <laughs> yeah, and a little bit raspier, and that there is actually a fair amount of variation going on. And I think that's true with Niall in general. Is there's loads going on here with the guitars and the drums and the vocals and these additional elements with the keyboards and the other instruments being played. But it can be such an assault on your senses, particularly if you haven't listened to this style of music before, that you'd just sort of be blown away from it at first. Because I don't mean as well, actually, with that song, like, um, the, hearing that video as a kid, I, I, I was so put off by the vocals, I was kind of... Um kind of couldn't get my head around it but then I realised like days later I was actually humming that that intro riff because it's got a really catchy style yeah, riff and yeah. like particularly with um, George's like drum work around yeah. that riff he does a really cool set of fills and I was like actually I kind of want to know how to play this and that's <laughs> how I eventually got back into Nile was like like half the time I was like oh no, I can actually get past the vocals and everything else here is incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you reach the point we're at today where it's like the vocals are incredible. <laughs> so brilliant. Yeah. Um, and it, it gets that ominous feeling that they go for here, like the sort of super low vocals fit that, like just something is moving towards you and it's enormous and terrifying. But then you have Dallas who will bring in those sort of slightly more shouted vocals which sounds like that sort of desperation angle yeah, to it yeah. they're really surprisingly emotive for what you might think on first listen yeah like, like, like that bit in uh, Sacrifice where he just yells for Osiris like yeah, all the same yeah. it's like oh it's about to kick off yeah, yeah. Uh, there's so there's so many great kind of changes up in this as well because after that point you get like the far more like slow almost introspective uh Ursa Matra, which mm. has these bits that like grind so slowly down to just huge chunky riffs and then back into blasting madness. Yeah, and then you'll get sort of Carl Sanders doing, as well as the really low sort of fast picking, he'll do these like screeching noises on the guitar that like sound just apocalyptic and it's not it's not your sort of normal pinch harmonics, it's something different. Yeah. Don't yeah. really know what he does. So um I'm not sure if he had this at the time, so he definitely had the 
the guitar he stopped using now, the Spear of Destiny. Oh, which is, yeah. <laughs> if you've never seen it, it's amazing. It's a flying V with like a headstock that is basically like a foot-long spike. <laughs> um, but he has a double-necked version of this. I know he definitely used a lot on iPhallic, where mm. his second guitar, the second neck on the, the double is a... Um, fretless 11 string and it's what oh, you use yeah. to make this huge slides yeah. which you get a lot of in like any track on I like has those kind of like um, I'm trying to think of a good example like Eat of the Dead has an, those that's going that's an 11 string guitar and I don't know quite how what that works because normally the 12 string they're in pairs mm. so um, it might have a separate low and then paired the rest of the strings yeah. But yeah, that's that's how he makes some of these really weird noises he stopped using that as much he's now moved just to like these really you know Standard looking Dean guitars. Mm. I mean, they're lovely, but like they're <laughs> slightly less <laughs> totally unique in his thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, and he is he is just a phenomenal guitar player. And you were saying as well that the way he records is just insane. Yeah, he. Um, so I don't know. Again, I don't know if he's always done this, but I've got one. Uh, I've got the DVD of the making of those whom the gods detest, mm. and he records most songs as one full take. He won't like if. Unless there's an obvious stop point, but if there's like two minutes of uninterrupted rhythm guitar, he will play that rhythm guitar track for two minutes. And if he fucks up a minute thirty in, no cut in goes back to the start. Yeah. So like, and it's because Niall are a great live show. If you've ever got to see mm. them, especially when Dallas was still in the band, like, and they you can tell from their albums they are trying to replicate this yeah. live. Like, yeah, yeah. they want to be able to play all of this. Yeah, and and they nail it. And it's that sort of. I mean, it's a thing that's really hard to do, but that sort of commitment to it comes through when you see them live because they have trained themselves to play it perfectly. Yeah. And when you listen to it and how precise it is and how difficult so many of these parts are, it's it's hard to imagine how long it takes to gather <laughs> that level of technical proficiency. Yeah, and I think these are just people who are like training their whole life to be this brilliant. Because they're not even that old at this album. No. I think they're all in their like, early 30s at this point. Um, yeah. Sadly, this is like John DeSano's just brief tenure with the band. He really interesting, actually. He's not on the previous album, but he's in the videos for the previous album. <laughs> but he doesn't make it to the videos for. Oh right, the, like, so he's not in the video for Sacrifice on the Sabbath, but he is in the video for the Execration Text on the previous album. Also, if you've never looked up a picture of this guy, do he's a yeah. beast of a human. <laughs> There's some debate of him with his lime green bass. Yeah, he's a fairly <laughs> incredible looking dude. Yeah, and, and the sort of themes of the album, that epicness, like extends into the lyric writing as well. We were just having a quick look at the lyric book and thinking, oh, we should have read this. But then each song has almost an entire essay next to it. So, so they did this, I forgot what album, I think they stopped doing it on those whom the gods detest. So what Carl used to do was every song he would put in a full essay explaining mm. the concepts behind the song because they're very well historically researched or based on a kind of, you know, cool Lovecraftian idea. Um, he, he has put a lot of time and effort into the lyrics and I think he mm. is, I think he's the sole lyricist for the band. Um, so yeah, I felt this need to kind of explain and I've read from before and past, I just didn't get around to reading them again because it's a fucking novel but it, it is, it's that cool thing of more that if you're ever listening to an Nile song going like oh there's some cool themes in that I wonder what that's about there is a huge wealth of information yeah it's not just that stuff where it's you know a cool concept that has been plucked out of the air because it makes a good death metal song it's like no there is loads of research and thinking behind this like all of these concepts are things in a way and have been properly thought about 
And I think it's why someone like Carl Sanders doesn't have that many side projects because mm. I think Niall is just too time consuming. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, like, his solo albums as well are so connected to Niall and clearly, to some extent, are just like an overflow of I've got too many of these ideas yeah. of what to do instrumentally. Which, which in a way I really like because it means that, I mean, this is a long album, but it doesn't end up getting oversaturated. It, and it very easily could by putting in, you know, you can imagine it in a way where you've got a little instrumental break in between each track. And I think that would just ruin the pacing. Yeah, um, definitely. So I, I really appreciate that he does that and pulls things into sensible packages. I mean, this album is still long enough to make it sometimes difficult, but it's, it's one of those things where the, this is just a giant album. Yeah, you yeah. have to prepare yourself to listen to loads of stuff. You know, when you get to the end and you've got two giant eight-minute tracks at the end, so you have to sort of sign on for this when you start. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because as well, it does a lot of the more catchy elements quite early on. Although we do have Lash to the Slave Stick, the kind of yeah. the the absolute riff fest of the album. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was saying before, I think that's a lot of people's favourite ever Nile mm. song. Um, it also continues the trend I love of Nile always having at least one track on every album. <laughs> With an upsettingly long song title. <laughs> I can't remember this one off the top of my head, but I can remember, I think I learned it correctly. On the next album, you have Papyrus containing the spell to preserve the possessor against attacks from heroes within the waters. Yeah. <laughs> and this one is um, Chapter of Obedience before giving birth to the insective in the presence of the crescent shaped horns. <laughs> to the inert one in inert the present one the yeah. of the crescent shaped horns yeah but it's, it's like <laughs> it, it's quite poetic and it you know if you're somebody who's read Lovecraft stuff which if you're into extreme metal it's definitely worth a go yeah. purely because you'll go through the book going like oh, I get that reference yeah. like <laughs> you, the amount of stuff I remember when I first read Lovecraft and went oh that's where they got that from yeah 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 the, the, like, the, from dream to dream I have always been like that I think is that that's is that the quote? No, it's the Strange Eons quote. Strange Eons and even Death May Die. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah which is in so much metal. But um, <laughs> Including Divian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but uh, like I, I really like Niall's long song titles because it doesn't actually have any effect on the music you're listening no, to. No, no. And like, it's not just there for the sake of being stupid. As you say, there is actually some poetry to what's going on. It's just kind of fun. Yeah, you yeah. Say, yeah, this song title is nearly two sentences long. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so I, the other thing I discovered is uh, Bob Moore, the producer on this, has produced and engineered all their albums. So that kind of, oh, right. that, the reason the, there's that big change in sound and then sudden consistency is because mm. essentially this guy just worked out what he wanted to do with the sound. Yeah. Another interesting crossover of what we're talking about here is uh, Orion Lando um, did the cover for this and Epitaph. Oh, right. Yeah. Neither particularly amazing album yeah. covers, actually, but uh, I guess Annihilation of the Wick is quite, quite cool. But, um, yeah. Yeah, it's just interesting. Like, yeah, it's clearly, quite cool. clearly some uh, overlap there. Also, something well worth looking up because I didn't find it until a friend pointed it out to me. There's an amazing five minute long song that's like a Japanese bonus track to this album called SSS hat set yoff, which most people have never heard. Mm. Really good Nile song. Like yeah. I, I have no idea why it's not on the album. I wonder mm. if they just got to the point of like we don't want to do more than fifty minutes, yeah, um, yeah. or something like that. So I had to cut something because there's no, there's no fat on this album. No. In terms of like Nile's catalog, because I, I would say I think they're a band I'm totally obsessed with, and I think they mm. are one of the most consistent bands in death metal. Yeah. I don't think they've ever released something bad or even even something that wasn't interesting. Yeah. I know yeah, some yeah. people take issue with some of their late their last two albums aren't mm. quite as popular. 
But I think they're one of those bands, much like, say, Cannibal Corpse, where you could pretty much buy any of their albums, and they're, yeah. they're verging from great to... And, and, and I think the thing that, like, separates them from a band like Cannibal Corpse is that no one has got their sound. Like, they're completely unique. They've done a thing with death metal that no one else has. And there's a lot of bands who they have influenced massively, but no Definitely. one's been able to copy them. Yes, yeah, you, you hear Nile riffs from time to time yeah. now, but you don't hit... There's no one who's done something that sounds quite like... Particularly like the longer tracks, like something like Annihilation of the Wicked. I've not heard that reproduced. No. I've not heard bands that are this fast and technical get quite this doomy as often. Yeah, like get those huge slow sections like on... Um, well, the one that really is to mind is on um, the next album is uh, Even the Gods Must Die, where it's just like this apocalyptic, slow, like dirge of a song. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, and I think there's a really interesting lesson in restraint there from really technical bands like this, and particularly for drummers as well, because sometimes there is that temptation to just push the speed and push that, like brutality but when you bring in those really slow segments it makes your fast segments sound even more punishing yeah in terms of Nile albums where does this one stand for you because many people rate this as their absolute best it's probably quite high up there um I reckon and this is probably like probably not a hugely well held opinion it's probably because it was the first one I got into I feel like the next album is probably my favorite I Um, I really like that one yeah Possibly also because it's got Even the Gods Must Die, which is my favourite Nile song. Okay. Um, just because it's so, like, it just sounds like an apocalypse coming in, and I love that. <laughs> the only issue I have with that is the intro, the big, like, orchestral stabs yeah. at the start of it, are almost exactly the same as Dr. Weird's intro in the early episodes of Aquatine Hunger Force. <laughs> if you never <laughs> play those two next to each other, it's really similar. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> just always accept someone to yell yeah. gentleman after <laughs> Right, I'm I'm not sure if I should look that up or not. Ruin the song for me. Yes, um, because personally, I would say I'm a huge fan of the two before this, actually, mm. like uh, Black Seas of Vengeance and In Their Darkened Shrines, which don't get quite as much love. Mm. And then actually, I really love um, their sixth album, uh, Those Whom the Gods Detest. Yeah, I think that that one has. Like, just a lot of the themes on this, that is the most epic version of it for me. Yeah, yeah, I think I generally agree with that. Um, yeah, I I find that so I do like particularly shrines before this, but I think the addition of George Colias makes a huge huge difference, which I find hard to overlook. Just because he's he's one of those drummers who I just absolutely love. Yeah, I I would say as well that you've got that thing with with in the dark and shrines where the drummer is definitely trying to keep up with the rest of the musicians and like. Mm doesn't have the space to experiment whereas George is so comfortable in this yeah. band like yeah, yeah. he never seems overworked by it and mm. and somehow does fills that sound Egyptian I don't know how he worked that out but. I'm not sure how that's possible but yeah he manages it <laughs>
Yeah, so last weekend, uh, both me and Rob went to, well, a couple of live shows, or at least I did two and Rob was at one of them. Um, firstly, I want to talk about this one just because conceptually this was really interesting. I saw the Bristol-based band Sonnets, who are kind of that kind of really heavy, slightly proggy sludge kind of stuff. Mm. Just really disgusting sounding. Um, their latest album, To Possess You Entirely, is crushing. Yeah. But so, so I wanted to go see them live, but they were playing at the Cube Cinema. And what they've yeah. done, and this is a really fun idea, if probably too much of a challenge, um, was they'd come up, they wanted to play their new album in full, because it's only about half an hour long, and they'd got this whole sort of cinematic film to play over the top of it. And they challenged their free support bands to find something to play in the background of their own <laughs> set. So every yeah. band had their own take on doing a visual, like, kind of presentation backdrop, some yeah. kind of film to play Which along with really them. Which is really cool. Like, it's a tough thing for a smaller band, but, like, it's an amazing idea. Like, that would be such a cool thing to do, to just think, right, what works with the... What visuals does my music conjure up? Yeah, yeah. So we've got to see a lot of, like, relatively local bands with quite varied sounds trying to do do something interesting. I'd say the most successful, actually, of all four was the first band on, Warrior Pope, who um, are kind of... They're a really interesting concept, actually. Quite hard to describe. They're kind of very stonery in that, like, old-school stoner, like, almost mm. quite rocky in terms of the rhythm and bass work. Like, mm. quite good drum and bass work in the kind of more kind of groovy and, like, some weird cool ideas but then their vocals are almost this like very breathy death metal scream All right. and yeah and also the, the guitar the guitarist is having some troubles there wasn't that much guitar in the mix but it was still really interesting despite yeah. losing a whole <laughs> quarter of the sound almost and their like presentation was this weird like i think japanese film of all these kind of people in like white face makeup in the woods just doing weird ritualistic shit and it was really really creepy and over their set I was just like oh this is excellent and we're all in this tiny cinema in these little wooden yeah. chairs so how, how do they work it with in terms of between songs do they just do like a sort of so everyone every band seemed to have a continuous presentation yeah. I think it was just linked up to a laptop and they like have a 25 yeah. minute long film because I was just thinking the only thing that would really draw you out of that is if the film keeps playing the band stops and then says you're right everyone how are you doing you know? yeah <laughs> there, there wasn't too much crowd interaction yeah. with most of the yeah. bands yeah. um Azol did a far more obvious thing. They were a kind of um, one of those like atmospheric post metal instrumental bands. Like sound wise, they're fine. It's just not really my genre. And they just did this cool kind of like essentially colours, like mm. weird kind of slightly distorted film of various shades that kind of changed as the set went on, which fit really nicely. It just wasn't quite as memorable. Then um, Meadows, who were a proper like heavy stoner metal band. Just totally took the piss and put on the first half hour of Ninja Cop. <laughs> it's not really trying, is no, it? No, no. It, it, it was like, they hadn't even selected the best clips. Like, <laughs> it, just, it just played out. So I mean, the, oh. the film just cut out of the inverse oh, set. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. You could have at least done like a little edit to take the points <laughs> and then have a sort of cohesive narrative. And the, the problem is as well, it's one of those like ridiculous movies. I was like, I'm just watching the film. I am just <laughs> watching the films on quiet while like not paying attention to a band and then sonnets were just amazing like as before mentioned they have that extreme sound and they got the sound right there and it was punishing and heavy just really really crushing as you'd hope from that kind of style mm. um and their film was probably off putting to certain of the audience it involved a lot of close-up footage of eye surgery <laughs> 
Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah like lots of like pupils being sliced open. Oh. And yeah, I, I think it's definitely those of a sensitive position, <laughs> disposition might have fainted. Like, yeah, it, yeah. it was extreme, but it fit. And I love the concept of this. I really hope I see something like this again. Because, mm. uh, yeah, I've just never come across... I, I've never seen bands who are headlining with that kind of display to go along with them. Who let the support try the same? It's a really cool idea because it's like that. Um, I forget the name of it, but there's that Olva DVD where they have that. Sort oh, the of huge live, uh, live at Norwegian Opera House. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is phenomenal. Like really interesting, and Olva, a band who really lean into that. But it would be great to see other bands who have that more like slightly atmospheric bent have a go. Well, in exactly that vein, I saw Olva on that tour, and mm. their support. Like, they had a local support who was just the most awkward thing to watch yeah. in the stead of because they there's clearly like a bedroom kind of slightly electronic slightly guitar act and it just felt really messy and like oh, yeah. and then you see Oliver like this precise thing with this beautifully synced like display going along and it yeah yeah because none of the bands I saw of this had the advantage Oliver have of having someone back of house going right now this song has this film yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> which yeah, is but, a, another more difficult element I guess yeah is that is that technical challenge of not only do you have to play your songs right but if you speed them up you're going to speed up over your performance and then yeah. you're not going to be quite hitting the same beats so because yeah. with all the stuff you do have that thing of things sync with the snare drum in places like yeah. it is very uh, very interesting yeah yeah it's tough so in a completely different vein, the gig me and Rob went to together was an Al Nafrak and Akakoka um, at the Fekla, which is a cool local venue in a boat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a fun little Bristol venue. Um, it's it's one of those venues that also I think part of it being in like you know just like a little tin boat is that it's really fucking loud. <laughs> it's a really loud venue, um, and this was definitely a really loud show as well. Um, but it started off with a support band ended up dropping out, so I think it was Angora or. Ang- uh- Angrona, Ang- Angrona, yeah, I think it yeah. Is, so, so. Who, yeah, was sort of like a. Um, how would you describe them? So I'd say they're kind of that traditional black metal, and actually, some of the Behemoth influence here. They probably had the Behemoth interlocked leather armor, but with That's very, yeah. very kind of traditional black and white corpse paint, and they did that thing of doing well put together, straight down the line. Sort of almost Demi Borgia influenced, mm-hmm. um, like slightly symphonic black metal. A bit more heavy though. It's quite yeah, blasty. Yeah. And they had um, they, so they had two vocalists, and um, their female vocalist had an amazing scream. She was really good, yeah. really good scream, and like some really long drawn out ones as well. So like, I really enjoyed that part of it. Yeah, I thought the drummer was very good as well. It's just yeah. yeah, it's just like kind of I'm not really into the symphonic black metal that yeah. much, yeah. and I couldn't help but remark their male vocalist definitely seemed to be the equivalent of the dude in Lacuna Coil. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's like yeah, like we don't really need you. Yeah, I felt a bit sorry for him going up against the other vocalist because it was just like God, I want to hear more of those screams. And like he had he had harsh vocals and he had some clean vocals, but and and they weren't bad. They just weren't. <laughs> sort of they were, didn't like massively grab your attention whereas every time the other vocalist did something you were like right I gotta pay attention now and I think it's the dangers of the more kind of costume set as well of he tried to do a bit more crowd interaction and there's something about when you're wearing corpse paint where I almost feel like you can't do any crowd interaction there's a tricky balance to strike of like appearing as a normal dude while wearing corpse paint makes people think you're just fucking weird <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you commit to the sort of characterization of it then people buy it and they buy into the sort of show you're yeah because if you're going to do stage manager you almost got to be Alan from Primordial like yeah. you know that, that kind of hyper kind of 
mad poet kind yes. of thing and yeah, yeah, almost yeah. quite um, standoffish with the audience. Yeah, yeah, I can see that working because then the character just feels a bit weird and then your audience isn't buying into the show you're giving them. Yeah, yeah. So um, the band, obviously me and Rob mainly turned up because uh, we've mentioned our love of these yeah. guys before. Uh, Akakoka, um are back, no longer wearing suits. Um, they're yeah. now, now just in jeans and t-shirt. Interesting variation with this set yeah. is uh, frontman Jason's voice was completely gone. Yeah. So they, <laughs> they picked up... So keyboard player Sam, who is an amazing singer and does the clean vocals for Antichrist Imperium mm. and uh, Shrines as well, um, he picked up all the clean vocals and they had a vocalist... I forget which band he's from. Um, um, employed to Serve. Okay, yeah. yeah. Good. So doing harsh vocals, but he's very different style screams. Yeah, to like it's not the sort of super low stuff that Jason can do. Or, or just even like the more impenetrable nature. Yeah, well, and the sort of like half shout stuff that Jason can do as well. It, mm. was, it was like a different style of... It was still quite guttural, but it was a different style of vocal. Um, but I, that actually, like... Jason is one of my favourite vocalists who's around at the moment, but and, and, it, and it was a shame not to see him do it, but I don't think it really affected my enjoyment of it at all. Like, Sam's cleans are really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he ma- he still makes a really good leader for the band, and, and the guy who came in um, on the harsh vocals did a really good job. Like, yeah, he, yeah. he clearly knew the songs really well. Like, he got the rhythm spot on. I mean, he did have a bit... He had a couple of points where he came in, like, a, <laughs> a, like a kind of rotation through the riff too early, mm. but... This is the first day of the tour, so yeah. he's done. He's clearly filled in on yeah. very short. Yeah, notices. I was I was very impressed by that. Um, and there's the one bit I think we both noticed, which is in um, Verdelay. There's this bit where Jason just does this thing where he like makes his voice skip. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah, just sort of like when we got to that point, it's like yeah, no one else can do that. <laughs> yeah, and this guy just didn't even bother. Yeah, it's like it's not worth trying. You, you all know it's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. But but in terms of their performance, like these are seasoned musicians at this point. Um, like drummer David Gray is incredible. Um, like their lead guitarist is, you know, he can do the old kind of messy, scary sounding guitaring, and then mm. the newer stuff is very melodic, kind of proper virtuoso leany yeah. playing. Like, and then all that was excellent. Like the choice of set list was really solid. Yeah. It was something off every single album, and certainly went between the melodic and super heavy. And quite really a lot. cool to hear like a couple of things off. Um, some of the stuff like off cons on that hasn't been played in ages. You know, they played yeah. Valley of the Crucified, which is like I never thought I would hear that one live. Yeah, it's yeah. just not one I would have picked out. So it was really cool to see a live variant of that. Um, there's some great drum footage they've been uploading of David Gray playing, who is just a joy to watch. Like some little from the sides playing some of the songs, and it's that's where I noticed he does this thing with his blast beats, sort of yeah, similar to what yeah. Alex Grossman does. So yeah, he's he's always interesting to see. Yeah, so that that was amazing, and they closed on Shelter from the Sands, yeah. which is like. A ten-minute epic, which is mostly vocalless as well, and yeah. like goes for a lot of different movements. It was really interesting to catch that live. Slightly uh, pissed off the crowd because I think the crowd definitely more an Afric fans and come to Mosh, and we're getting a band more akin to old Opeth than yeah. they are to an Afric's like bludgeoning effect. Yeah, so. I was really, and I think Shelf of the Sands. I've never seen it live before. It's an awesome one because it does so many of these switches between your like extreme sections with the distorted guitars and then these like slower like yeah almost opeth like cleaner sections yeah and yeah. seeing them nail those transitions was really cool yeah yeah and it the first day of the tour it was incredibly well put together yeah. then we got the headliners and our nafrak who if you've never seen um, a friend of mine pointed this out to me i was like oh that's exactly why this 
problem always happens. And now an African band who always struggle with live sound. And and uh, my friend Joe, she pointed out, it's like, yeah, but have you ever looked at like the waveform of an Anafrak song? <laughs> their, their music is a solid block. Yeah, it's yeah, just like yeah. this, this continuous like black line. It's like ah, yeah, there's that's... there's no way of actually making that sound in any form of room. Like anything would reflect it. But yeah, so I was slightly concussed at this yeah. point due to due yeah. to uh, mosh pit shenanigans. What were your thoughts on this? Like? Yeah, um, I really enjoyed it actually. So the the thing that I found, and I've only noticed this halfway through, is there's a little sort of overhang in Fekla, which I was standing underneath. And as soon as you get out from under that overhang, the sound is infinitely better. Mm. Um, they struggled a little bit with the vocals. I thought the vocals were just off in the mix. Yeah. Because I really like their sort of lead vocalist. And I love his cleans, particularly on the newest album. So they opened up with A New Kind of Horror, the first track for the newest album. Cleans on that sound amazing. Like, yeah, it sounds yeah. really, really good. Um, I also loved Forward from the new album as well. Like, they've managed, because they've got the uh, machine guns, which go in time with the groove. That sound worked really, really well. They got that sound down. So that was really good. Um, but I agree in general that like there's just too much chaos to actually cohesively pull together. And I felt it most in the vocals, but the whole thing was a little bit muddy, but I still really enjoyed it. Like, And they're, they're a really tight performance. And it, and it captured that intensity that I know Anel Nathrak for, to go there and just sort of be pummeled. And yeah, it's, it's almost impossible for them to sound like their studio albums, as you were saying. It's just there's too much going on. But but still a good live show. Like I, definitely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think they 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 do a lot with what they can on that. And still, if you've never seen them live, I would definitely go check yeah. them out. They're certainly worth seeing. Yeah, because it's the first time I've caught them actually, and I really enjoyed it. So yeah, definitely worth it. Um, can't compete with Agacocker, but I love Agacocker so much that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's an unfair comparison. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the other things we want to briefly talk about. Um, there's been a load of metal films out recently. Uh, a lot I couldn't give a shit about. Um, like so, the one we particularly wanted to cover. I don't actually know how long this has been out, but I finally got the DVD of it. Mm. This is Slave for the Grind, uh, directed by Doug Robert Brown, which is a a kind of history of yeah, a kind of oral history of grindcore done by interviewing a slew of famous grind and early death metal musicians and that's the really cool thing about how it's structured is it is as you say it's an oral history it's told by the people who were there yeah it's not really told by the documentary makers obviously they have put this together in a certain way and they are framing that story but the story comes from the mouths of the people who lived it and I, th- I don't think Doug even... He's not even audible on the no. DVD, is he? He no, no, never no. says anything. And I, and I thought, I think there's a couple of bits and in interviews where you hear him, but like it's really sparse. Most of the interviews, you just hear the people they interview talk. And that's really nice to have it from the people who lived it, rather than that sort of take a step back and explain what happened. You yeah. actually hear it. And it, it creates this really nice cohesive narrative by just having interview clips interspersed with very brief bits of live footage, mm. a lot of modern live footage, particularly from Obscene Extreme Festival, yeah, yeah. Um, but then lots of like older clips as well, like really rough. Like, yeah. like yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they use a lot of clips of that anal cunt show where they're playing just in some random field. Like, yeah. If you've ever Googled, like, gone on YouTube, look for anal cunt, that's the video that comes yeah. up. Um, a thing that I really loved about it as well, and this sort of touched on stuff we were talking about earlier, is the importance of drumming in grindcore as it became a thing. And how important the sort of transition from the D beat to the blast beat was for yeah. the intensity. Because we're talking about technical death metal, which is incredibly intense. Grindcore is also incredibly intense, but in a very different way. But the drums also bring in this blast beat technique, which you find in no other genres of music. 
Yeah. So it was really interesting, and they had a drummer, um, I can't remember which band he was from, actually, but they had a drummer who did some footage, I think specifically for this, where he was demonstrating the different types of beats. And I thought that was really, really cool, of seeing how the drums drove the intensity of what was going on, focusing in on the drummers of these bands and how they helped drive grindcore as a movement. And I think there's a really interesting thing as well where you see the evolution of what the phrase grindcore meant. Yeah. Because back in the day, grindcore not only meant napalm death, which obviously yeah. it focused hugely on napalm death if you had to, but now bands we think of definitely death metal bands were grind at the time. Yeah. Repulsion yeah. and Carcass were seen as grind bands. And there's a lot of, there's a huge amount of interviews with Scott Carlson of Repulsion, who's mm. a really interesting character. And um, I think Jeff and Bill from uh, from Carcass are there as well. And it's that kind of, you kind of see that early intersection, the kind of earache years are a big focus of the first half yeah. of the DVD. And um, that kind of intersection of death metal and grinds I found really interesting. I found really interesting with Terrorizer as well, because mm. like my first thought wouldn't be to think of Terrorizer as a grindcore band. I would think of them as like a slightly gnarly death metal band. Yeah, yeah. But, the, but they were part of this scene and um, they went on to, for Morbid Angel and that stuff was really interesting as well it was quite sad actually the stuff about Terrorizer about how like there was just a fallout between Pete and Oscar and they just yeah. never they haven't solved it and that it's really sad to see such like an awesome like that awesome one album and, yeah. then, it, and then it just you know yeah they're, they're kind of holding a fizzing out of like Oscar's kind of like never really got something else together and yeah. and yeah like and obviously sadly Jesse didn't like last mm. that much I know he had his time with um Napalm Death, but yes, I mean, died not too long after yeah. it. But yeah, so they, they get into a lot of stuff. Like, one criticism of it was purely from, like, a kind of. I hate they, sort of, they had to do this, but I hate that they had to do it in so much detail. Is there is so much focus on Anal Cunt? Because yeah. when you think about it, they are definitely the second band in Grindcore. Yeah. Everyone knows Napalm Death, and then the next one they hear is Anal Cunt. Yeah. Possibly even first, because people find it funny. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, I agree with that. I sort of came away from it feeling. It was awesome that they had like so much stuff from Brutal Truth, for example. Like, yeah, it was great yeah. to hear in Nassim. Like, and I was sort of like, we could have had more of those kind of cool bands. At the same time, they have to address Angel Cunt in some way, as you say, because everyone knows who they are. You can't really do a history of Grindcore without covering them. And they do do a very good job of con- covering the controversy and the two sides of it. Like, um, yeah, yeah. What's the name of Prince's Man's frontman? I can't, I can't remember his name, but yeah, yeah. He, he has quite a good take where he's like, I don't get the joke. And, and like, yeah. it's very much my stance on El Cunt, where it's like, even as a child, I've never found it funny. I always thought it was that step too far. But they, they do a good thing of, you know, how the people who like find it hilarious and like love that weird performance art thing they were essentially doing yeah, and, versus those that hate them. And they, they don't give you an answer. You know, they don't mm. come down either side and they don't present an opinion of, of the filmmakers at all. They simply give you they give you interviews with both sides saying why they think this is good. They show you some of the footage for yourself. You can see some of the things that happened. And yeah, I come down on that I don't get it side. <laughs> why are we spending so much time thinking about this? I found it funny when I was younger, but I just don't get it now. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the one thing as well I found like quite interesting is like this in the bonus features. Like, so there's no mention whatsoever of porno grind in it, and in the bonus features, there's a five minute clip where they they were tempted to do porno grind and couldn't find anyone with anything nice to say about it, <laughs> so I had to just sort of leave it out. <laughs> yeah, because they do mention gore grind briefly and like gore grind. So we talk about it. Yeah, yeah. but what I personally argue gore grind is an important movement. Mm. Porno grind isn't like uh, that's that's my personal takeaway. I mean, some of you might like it. Gore grind has that kind of slight edge where it's going towards like harsh noise and that. 
like the very extreme end of electronic mm. stuff. Like those two genres are starting to kind of almost coalesce. And it's not music I get at all, but I yeah, understand yeah. there's a place for that. Whereas like porno grinds more that route of just like we turn the drum machine up as fast as it'll go yeah. and we're gonna pitch shift the vocals and sing horrible things about women. Like, yeah, yeah, it's it's got that sort of like hideous it's got that stuff we were talking about, like with really early death metal, that like sort of misogyny blatant in it, but then like just pushed up and made yeah. made sort of the point of it, which just really rubs me up the wrong way. But back to the slave for the grind, I would say this is definitely a a DVD that even if you're not a big grind fan, this is such um, an intrinsic part of the history of metal because you really get to see that intersection of punk and grind, uh, sorry, punk and death metal yeah. in the early days, which you know has now spread out to the point where hardcore and extreme metal are just completely linked now. Yeah. Whereas yeah. they used to be these two scenes that are absolute loggerheads now. Bands are in that situation where they don't know which of the two they are. Yeah, it's something like Oathbringer or something like that. Yeah, yeah, where it's just like, well, both sides sort of seem to claim them as their own. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you've got this, like, it is a very interesting bit of history. And because it is told entirely for interviews, you can't really take too much issue with anyone's take on it. Because it's it's just their personal take from it at the time. And they they will show, pretty much any time where there's a dispute between, like, someone talking about someone else, they will give you interviews from both sides. Yeah, When they've been able to get them, which, you know, is pretty fair. Both people are given the chance to talk about what happened. And I'd say this is definitely one of the better documentaries of a scene, well, not a scene, a kind of collection of scenes Mm. that I've seen. I feel this, um, this works so much better than, say, like, Sam Dunn's take on a lot of them, which were... We're sure a bit too much personal author insertion. Yeah, which like is fine in some cases, but when you're, it's when you're looking for that sort of history of what happened, it feels really cool to be immersed in it with the people who are there, rather than just someone exploring it. Which obviously is how this has been made, but it gives you a completely different feel. It feels like you're in it, and yeah, you're not yeah. just someone exploring it. You're there. You're seeing all the people who were part of it. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, we won't say too much more because we don't want to spoil like various interesting things in there and interesting yeah. stories. Uh, one other thing that I came out, actually, I got, I think, this week, um, was Andrew O'Neill's heavy, History of Heavy yeah. Metal show, which he's written a book about and toured for, like, three years. He finally did a full band recording of this show where he had, like, camera crews in, got a proper DVD of it. So what this show is, is it's kind of, it's sort of a comedy show. Like, it's not as comedic as his actual stand-up comedy shows, mm. but it's him telling the kind of, the history of heavy metal through the medium of comedy. And it is actually quite an accurate evolution yeah, of yeah. the genre. But he does it in fun ways. Like the start of the... The start, the set starts with him playing the opening riff from Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath. And then like singing different lyrics over it. About the, <laughs> the history of the universe. Like the yeah, formation yeah. of the universe. And as, as the history of the universe progresses. He changes up riffs he's playing. So he moves to Judas Priest riffs. And then goes yeah. into Metallica. Yeah. And, then, <laughs> and then into Slayer. And it's that kind of. And the, the, like the history of metal is done at that kind of surface level. But there's a lot of really good jokes in it. Yeah, there's a lot of. Yeah. There's so much stuff. Of, if you're a metal fan you're going to identify with so much of the kind of shit he's getting pissed off about. <laughs> but it's also meant to be aimed such... And he performed this just through comedy venues, like because he's yeah. a stand-up comedian primarily. It's meant to be something you could sit down with. You know, if your girlfriend or boyfriend's not into metal, this is a show you could watch with them yeah, and they definitely. might get their head around it more. Yeah, yeah, they'd get that sort of understanding of it. You'd actually be able to hear it being played live in front of you, which is really cool with the full band, uh, which I haven't seen, actually. Oh, yeah, you've never seen I've, it. I've, I've seen it. I've seen him do it. 
two or three times, but I haven't seen him do it with the band, so I'm really excited to get a chance to watch that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how easy it will be to get at this point in time, because mm. essentially we're at the point where his Kickstarter yeah, just was successful, one, yeah. and like he's finally made the copy, but for like American listeners who haven't seen this, I highly recommend trying to get the DVD or yeah. um, get like access to the stream of this, because... It's just a really decent show, and it's definitely one to sit down with people who don't like metal and be like, "This is why I get it." Yeah, and it, and it explores it in a really fun way as well. Like it is really entertaining. There's loads of good jokes in there, and you, as a metal fan, will get that slightly deeper level of appreciation too for the bits which fly over other people's heads. Yeah, and it's just fun as well when he's covering stuff like Slayer. He now has a full band yeah. actually blasting for a bit of a Slayer yeah. song. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's yeah, it's just incredibly cool and yeah, just a really funny show as well. Mm, but definitely. Yeah, so fuck the other two films about metal out at the moment. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I've not seen them. They might be fine. I've just got no interest in no. Lords of Chaos. No, well, I saw a clip from it today which just came up on my Facebook and it's... Yeah, like, I just... I sort of feel uncomfortable with people making films about Varg. Like, fuck <sighs> the guy. He doesn't deserve any publicity. Yeah. Starve yeah. him of it. <laughs> no, I'm... And that's I'm, pretty much all of... Yeah. But yes, go, go pick up copies of Slave to the Grind, History of Heavy Metal. Like, these are really yeah. good stuff. Um, yeah, so I think that's pretty much it for it. Um, mm. Sorry, this has been quite a long one. <laughs> I, I think we covered four bands. We're like, we've never talked about any of these before. Yeah. <laughs> really kind of want to go actually, on to them now. All actually really important bands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, get in touch with us. Uh, Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook. Um, at Phil's Breakfast Metal at gmail.com for, if you want to get in touch with our email. At Breakfast Metal on Twitter. Please like rate and review us on iTunes. And more importantly, just share us with your friends. Cool. Thanks a lot.